Welcome, everybody. It's Ed Martin. I'm here again with Jordan Henry, uh, the director of research at the Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. And Jordan Henry and I are hosting this great podcast, Life Matters, rallying the pro-life movement to fulfill its calling. And today we have a very special guest we'll talk about in a moment. But part of the power of this guest is his work in the pro-life movement and in galvanizing the different forces. You know, for for people that don't realize um, Americans United for Life, which is the organization that Clark Forsyth is working for, worked for for many years. He's now the senior counsel. It, it existed. I think he'll correct me. It existed a, a few years before Roe v. Wade happened. And it was um, organized to, again, to try to talk about the life issues and to rally the forces because some people were were worried about the medical issues. Some people were worried about the legal issues. Some people were worried about different aspects of it. And, and holding together uh, the coalition of people that care about life is a real challenge. So our, our guest is Clark Forsyth. And Clark Forsyth is the senior counsel at the Americans United for Life. Uh, he's also the author of a book that Phyllis Schlafly uh, really thought incredibly valuable, was very interested to read. And, and I myself, we were just talking off the air a few years ago. Uh, we had Clark Forsyth down in St. Louis at the headquarters of the Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. He gave a, a presentation on the book, Abuse of Discretion, which is really a, a compilation of what happened in Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, especially enlightened by the notes and the memos and the back and forth amongst the judges and the clerks in their chambers. And a lot of those documents had not been released to the public until a few years ago when Clark went through, figured them out, found them, and, and wrote this important book, Abuse of Discretion. So welcome, uh, Clark, first of all, for the pro to the program. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Ed. It's uh, good, great to be with you. So I mentioned uh, AUL, Americans United for Life's position in the movement. I'd say something with you. For a long time, um, Clark, I saw you writing, sometimes law reviews, sometimes more popular sort of essays on what might be possible. You know, sort of, I used to say, Clark Forsyth's the brain. There's a bunch of litigators around him, but he's thinking about what, what could be possible. We're, we're facing a decision in the summer on the Dobbs case that is now sort of coming to a head on the question of Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton. But it didn't have to be that way. There's other ways it could have gone. How do we end up here with the Dobbs decision? Well, uh, before 1973, the issue was a state issue. It, it had been a state issue going back uh, to the 1600s, since mm. the time of the American colonies. Uh, and uh, the states were, I mean, as, as medical uh, information, as medical knowledge about prenatal development grew, the laws became more protective through the 19th century, through the 20th century. And then they hit the cultural maelstrom of the 1960s. And uh, the court stepped in horribly, a terrible self-inflicted wound in Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton, and uh, took the issue away from the, from the states, from the people. The people couldn't decide the issue. And so uh, we've had 40, uh, 48 years now, 49 years of, of, a, of a terrible obstacle to democracy in America, a terrible obstacle to protecting human life. And so I, I wrote Abuse of Discretion, frankly, with a lot of questions. How did they do this? Why, why did they do this? Why did they uh, issue and write such a, a catastrophic opinion that has created political and legal turmoil? and judicial turmoil for 49 years. And as you said, I was able to find the, the papers of uh, eight of the nine justices who voted in Roe, and uh, they tell a completely different history. They tell uh, how the court went off the rails. And uh, so I think one way of thinking about Roe versus Wade is that it's been a, a 
a huge obstacle in the road to democracy and to uh, reflecting public opinion in public policy. Some people that are listening that are that are pro-life and they're like, oh, you know, why can't we get rid of abortion? And as you point out, if things happen in the summer, we may be talking about each state taking action. But why didn't something come up sooner? Right. I mean, there was in the 80s, there was appointments of some justices. It looked like you had a majority. Why Why didn't this, you know, we had, and, and this is where, you know, we've talked before about Casey, uh, um, but it, it seems like it almost took longer than it should have. And and a lot of people feel that way. Is that, what What was the dynamic there that got us to, to 49 years? Well, when the decision came down, political, social, financial interests propped up the decision. Hmm. I mean, it, we, uh, the, the, I, I see it the opposite. I see it. How did we possibly keep it unsettled for 49 years? That's the miracle. Huh. And that's the miracle because we have persisted and persevered against all odds to keep it unsettled. And if it was settled today, we wouldn't have the Dobbs case. Huh. If it was settled, we wouldn't be before the Supreme Court. The miracle is that we kept this unsettled in the face of billionaires and billion dollar foundations and the Democratic Party and all the other special interests that have kept this going, the population controllers. Yeah. Boy, that's a that's an incredible point. But you, if I may, you should write that as an op-ed essay, because I think I don't think people I, as you said it, I thought, oh, yeah, he's right. This is typical Clark Forsyth, by the way, to our, our listeners. He he's always he's got this way of seeing what's happening and talking about it or thinking, communicating about it. Um, so that's that's an incredibly important. All right, Jordan, I interrupted you, please. Yeah. So, uh, Clark, as you were doing research for abuse of discretion and you were going through all of this history, so much history that most people have never heard. Would you say there was one claim or one, one fact you found that just shocked you the most about that case? Huh? Well, there is, I think a kind of a smoking gun in a, in a memo between justice Douglas and justice Brennan in December of 71 a couple of weeks after they first heard arguments in the first round, they had two, two rounds of arguments, December 71 and October of 72. And this memo, which was written right before the end of the year, uh, basically said, um, we got to get to uh, a right to abortion. We got to sweep away the abortion laws uh, and we can uh, forget all these evidentiary problems and procedural problems and just sweep them away. And uh, the, it, it, they won't block us from uh, declaring a right to abortion. Mm. So it was an incredibly result-oriented decision. Wow. They basically voted to sweep away the abortion laws. And then the question was, well, how do we write this? How do, <laughs> how do we justify this? Right. And uh, it, was a, it was a terrible moment uh, when, I, when I found that memo. And, uh, and uh, it showed that the decision, I mean, we've all thought the decision was arbitrary and capricious. But this memo showed it was, and, and the rest of the paper showed it's even more arbitrary and capricious than we thought it was. It was ar arbitrary and duplicitous. Uh, that's a that different too. standard. That's, but, um, but they went on after that to write the decision. And this is a question that I've, th I've thought a lot about to explain to my kids, for example. Uh, Clark and I were talking off the air about our children. He's got a bunch of grandchildren, too. To explain things to them, that they're, they're not as either not as engaged or as interested yet. My kids are younger. Um, 
They made it up, right? They decided what they wanted, result-oriented. Let's sweep away all these laws that, are, that regulate abortion, and then let's make it up. And they started making it up. They're like, um, how, how about a trimester? I, I took some Latin. Try sounds fun. Let's go three, six, nine. Yeah, that's kind of fun. Let's do trimester. Let, let's do viability. We'll make it this and that. And when they're done, if you could, if you wrote it up as a farce, you, you know, it's, it's almost got an Alice in Wonderland quality about it. However, when you look at justices, conservative, not more conservative justices who try to reverse this tr made up, uh, you know, results oriented decision, isn't there a danger that they're going to have to make it up too? I mean, what happens if Dobbs comes down and says basically, yeah, they made that up. Uh, oh, and by the way, here's what we'll say. Here's the framework. I mean, there's no, is there a way to make the uh, a decision other than go back to the states? If that, that decision seems pretty clear. Is there a way to make any other decision that doesn't feel made up? No. And uh, <laughs> there, there have been a number of uh, analyses about that. I mean, how do they justify not overturning? How do they justify a new standard? Right. Uh, and, and hopefully uh, Justice uh, Thomas and Alito and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Barrett understand that and you know, my hope is that the five of them will hold together as they have in, say, the worship shutdown cases and uh, the COVID worship shutdown cases. Right. And we'll pull Roberts over into a 6-3 majority. Uh, I hope that's the outcome. Uh, I don't expect it, but I hope that's the outcome. Um, but I, I think there are, uh, are at least three who understand they can't keep making it up. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. well, if you say uh, we're talking with Clark Forsyth, by the way, and uh, again, Clark Forsyth is the author of the book Abuse of Discretion. You can find it anywhere books are sold. He's a senior counsel at uh, Americans United for Life, um, AUL.org. And um, it, but if you what do you expect? You said you don't expect it. What do you expect in the Dobbs case? That's a dangerous question to ask, isn't it? <laughs> um, I at the very, uh, you know, there uh, there are uh, three or four possible outcomes. Um, although I think the most logical and sensible, obviously, is overturning Roe and Casey. Right. But um, they could uphold a 15 week. There could be, you know, six different opinions. They could, you know, it could come down, you know, three, one, one, three, two, you know, and three. Uh, right. It could come down very splintered. Uh, I hope that's not the case. I hope six joined together to overturn Roe and Casey. That would be the most stable outcome. I mean, if you're if you're concerned about the the future of the court, if you're concerned about the the core the, the legitimacy of the court, a six three overruling is going to be more stable than a five four overruling. And I hope Ro Chief Justice Roberts would see that. Um, you know, uh, if if I may, I, I, I listened to the arguments as as you did probably uh, Ed on December first, and I was really struck that this was not Casey in 1992, where they talked about the minutia of the various provisions of the Pennsylvania law. Uh, the five most conservatives were completely focused on the legitimacy of Roe and Casey. How can we justify those? Right. And that is something that has never happened since 1973 or 1971 or two. Right, right. And that was impressive. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So one, one thing that I have wondered about a lot with uh, the possibility of overturning Roe and, and some of the subsequent case law there is, um, you know, we have now these trigger laws that many states have passed 
saying that when Roe is overturned, then that's going to immediately uh, put this uh, pro-life legislation in place. Uh, but as far as I'm aware, I don't know if there's any kind of a precedent for that kind of legislation. So I'm wondering from a judicial standpoint, do you think that those trigger laws are something that are going that, that's going to be effective should Roe be overturned? Or do you think that that, you know, that's going to be mired in the courts for for who knows how long? Well, I suppose that unless the court is definitive and clear and says we hereby overrule Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, if they're not that clear, the abortion advocates will try to keep this in the federal courts. Right, right. But they're also the state courts. And the state courts can be as activist as the federal courts. And some of these laws are maybe mired in state court litigation. Interesting. Uh, so that is going to be a concern. But um, the, the, the one of uh, the major emphases of, of the cause for life has to be enforcing the laws that are on the books in your state, mm -hmm. seeing that they are all enforced, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, Missouri or Illinois or uh, Texas or whatever, the governor and the attorney general are, are going to be on the front lines. Are they going to enforce these laws? as well as pregnancy care centers. Pregnancy care centers are going to be on the front lines. And so pro-life people have to support their public officials in enforcing the law and support pregnancy care centers. Those are going to be on the front lines. All right. Now, if I switched over, if I switched over and I was uh, hosting a, a, a podcast called, you know, Abortion Matters, and I listened to what we were saying, I might say something like this. Hey, everybody. Um, what we have to do is hope for a decision, work towards a decision to keep the law unsettled. We can't let those billion-dollar right-wing uh, lunatics ban abortion in America at the federal level. We have to keep the law unsettled. It, and I'm being tongue-in-cheek, of course, facetious, but as we're talking about it, and, and, and I, th I think that's such an important such an important way to frame the last 49 years of, of pro-life activism, uh, you, you said, Clark, which is keeping the law unsettled gave us a chance to get here. Whereas if it had gone totally a different way, it would have been left behind. And, and politically, people knew Phyllis Schlafly was one of them. If they could get this behind them, the Republican Party wanted to get behind it. They wanted a tolerance statement under Bob Dole, and they wanted a pro-abortion plank under Ann Stone in the early 90s, all that stuff that Phyllis fought against. But will the is one of the paths to beat the pro-life movement for the pro-abortion and the left to keep it unsettled, keep the litigation going, keep because the one thing people aren't noticing, Joe Biden may be flailing and failing in every way, but he's loading up the courts with judges. Chuck Schumer has made sure that they have loaded up the court, lower courts with real ideologue judges. So you could see this process be a litigation heavy. They couldn't get they couldn't get marriage on the ballot, so they did it through Obergefell, right? They might not be able to hold abortion at the Supreme Court, but they could churn it up for decades in the lower courts. Is that one of the paths? Um, I th I think you're right, and um, and that's why um, pro life voters, pro life Americans, need to be involved in their states because instead of just kicking the ball uh, to judges and assuming that judges are are going to 
uh, make the decisions, uh, the people in the states are going to be making the decisions. Uh, and the governors and the attorney generals and the state senators and state representatives, they're going to be making the decisions. The people you vote to vote for are going to be making the decisions, not the judges. Although in some states, uh, it, it might get mired in state courts and state courts might decide. And then you've got to decide how to fix your courts. Right. Um, but I think the moment, you know, we are here today because of the states. We are here today because of federalism. We are here today because the states um, uh, you know, uh, we, we couldn't get things through Congress. We couldn't get a constitutional amendment through Congress after Roe. And, and the states have been the driver of momentum and will be after Dobbs. Yeah, I think that's an important point that, uh, you know, you're just on the ground uh, person who's pro-life may not necessarily understand that, uh, you know, after Roe v. Wade is overturned. That does not immediately mean that abortion is is banned throughout the United States. That's that's honestly that's where the real fight actually begins. Uh, whenever that's turned over to uh, the the states and, and everything like that. So I know that you mentioned earlier that um, what pro life people need to be doing in preparation for this is focusing on uh, supporting both uh, their state officials. Uh, and then also pregnancy resource centers. So would you say that there is anything else that just the average person at home should be doing to prepare for uh, the possible outcome of Roe v. Wade being overturned? Uh, well, besides prayer, 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 yeah. um, the other thing is people have got, got to get to the polls in November. I mean, uh, you know, f four months after this decision, uh, we'll be going to vote. And people have to get there in droves and have to make their voice heard, you know, from the top to the bottom of the ballot. Because, um, you know, as well as I do, that in the first couple of weeks, if the if the court overturns, uh, you know, Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, there's going to be screaming in the streets. I mean, who knows what kind of maelstrom there may be or riots. Right. But I, that that will settle down sooner or later. And the real the real vote, the real test uh, is going to be in November, yeah. the first elections, state and federal since the decision. And that's going to be very important, very important. So supporting state officials, pregnancy care centers, voting. Those are I, I can't imagine anything more than those three. Hmm. Uh, again, we're talking with Clark Forsyth, and let me underscore again, his book is called Abuse of Discretion. If you want to understand uh, what happened with the Roe v. Wade decision, the Doe v. Bolton decision, it's incredible that looking back at the notes and the memos between the justices, uh, Clark is also the senior counsel at Americans United for Life. AUL.org is the website. Lots of good information there. Clark, uh, one broader question on the on the post after Dobbs. I, I, I put aside, we could put aside, because it's much more complicated, the question of whether it's a split decision or even a non Reversal, and then we don't know where we are. It's a lot of a lot of things to think about. Let's say though that it, it's um it is a very positive thing that 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 five or six of the justices say, hey, look, you made that up. We're going to let this go back to the states. How do you think, with you know four decades, four plus decades of experience leading and being a part of the pro life movement? How do we galvanize? You know, our tagline is life matters. And we talk about rallying the pro-life movement to fulfill its calling. How do we work together? How, what's the vision to work together? And I, offline, you and I were talking, some people from the very beginning of Roe v. Wade, they said, wait, that's killing. 
I'm going to, you know, Operation Rescue. I'm going to American Life League. I'm not going to give an inch. And then others saying, hey, how do we move things in ways that can constructively save babies and also change the law? What do you think happens after? Is there a way to think of a vision of what comes after that would bring knit people together uh, to keep that going? Because no matter its dissension amongst itself, the pro-life movement has been very effective at, as you say, keeping the law unsettled and, and creating state opportunities to challenge things. Well, in two words, it's political prudence, which Phyllis, of course, <laughs> was a champion of. Right. Um, but that, what does that mean? That means being active, being informed, for example, you mentioned uh, uh, www.aul.org. Um, you can go to our state legislative tracker and you can find uh, pro-life and pro-abortion bills uh, that are in your state, uh, the bill numbers and the sponsors, and, and be informed about what's going on in your state capital. Um, but I think there has been unity, especially with this uh, since the 2016 election, by pro-life organizations focusing on uh, overturning Roe and focusing on state legislation. And um, it's not as if there's, uh, you know, a scorched earth uh, in the states uh, when Do if Dobbs overturns Roe versus Wade. There's a lot of law in the books now. Right. As, as Jordan said, there are these trigger, uh, well, uh, let's call them conditional laws yeah. because they are conditioned on the overturning. Um, there are heartbeat laws in a number of states. There are other gestational limits. If, if Roe was overturned today, and there's a memo on our website about this as well, what, what, uh, what happens in your state when, when Roe is overturned, uh, a 50-state analysis. But um, there are all kinds of laws on the books. Uh, those should be enforced. Uh, public officials need to be supported in enforcing those. But then you, we need to go to our state legislatures and say, uh, well, these laws are on the books. Now that Roe is gone, uh, here's how we should amend those. And so there's going to be a lot of need for political action and legislative action and being involved. And, and we should all be involved. Now, um, you know, the, the pro-life movement has, has benefited from 50 different ideas over the last, you know, 50 years. And um, that's the nature of politics, as you know, and, and the nature of public policy. You propose policies and um, um, the effective ones make, uh, get enacted and, and make progress. And the less effective ones, you know, kind of fall by the wayside. But it's uh, it's it's comparing policies. It's talking about policies. It's debate. It's democracy. So uh, let's be uh, good citizens in this democratic republic of ours and be involved. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, we sure appreciate Clark Forsyth again. Clark is the author of Abuse of Discretion, available anywhere you buy books. And he's the senior counsel at Americans United for Life, AUL.org. He just mentioned their website. Tons of information from uh, state trackers of legislation to analyses of uh, of uh, cases. And even I saw in there earlier the Dobbs case uh, oral argument. There was an analysis done. You can go kind of catch up on what was said as well as what's been written. So thank you, Clark, for everything you do and for taking the time with us uh, to be on Life Matters. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Jordan. A pleasure to be with you. Okay. Uh, we'll take a quick break, everybody. We'll come back. And Jordan, I'll have a few uh, uh, things to uh, wrap things up. So be right back.
Welcome back, everyone, to Life Matters, where we are rallying the pro-life movement to fulfill its calling. I'm Jordan Henry, Director of Research with Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Also here with me, Ed Martin, President of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles and former Chairman of the Missouri Republican Party. And in this second half of our uh, podcast episode today, we want to tackle uh, one aspect of the abortion issue that I think is is very poignant, especially now as we consider the possibility of the Dobbs case. Um, a quote from Justice Scalia to make you think as we get started. I will become a believer in the ingeniousness, though never the propriety, of the court's newfound respect for the wisdom of foreign minds when it applies that wisdom in the abortion cases. That's an interesting thought. You know, we we have a lot of talk these days about uh, global laws and looking to other nations as we consider <laughs> our own uh, our own court cases. And you can think about that what you will, but there's obviously a very very great disparity uh, when you consider international laws uh, about abortion and uh, on other topics and how the courts tend to view that. And I think that Justice Scalia is pointing out a really interesting point in that regard. Um, Phyllis Schlafly used to talk a lot about how the U.S. is among only seven nations in the world that allow elective abortion on demand after 20 weeks of pregnancy. Uh, Now, just look at the other nations that are on that list. That puts us in the company, seven nations in the entire world. And who are we in the company of? China. North Korea, Vietnam, Singapore, Netherlands, Canada. That's who we're with whenever we're choosing that we're going to have no national prohibition of abortion on demand after 20 weeks. And, and I think that's a very interesting point to consider. A couple of comments on that. One is, it's one of the reasons why the rest of the world looks up sometimes and says, why are you trying to import your values here? Right. You know, it's one thing for you to say how great you think your democratic Republic is. And we do see that it's a great one thing for you to tell us how well you think that a free market system, you know, free market capitalism based on Judeo Christian values works. Cause we see it does right. When you have the rule of law, when you have property rights and all, they see all that, but then they see us coming and they say, what are you doing? You know what you're, you're bringing that here. It's not like you have to go to France and have France, uh, you know, teach us to be far left liberals when it comes to abortion and parts of the world. Look at that. More interesting question, as you point out, is um, how do we see some of the values of the rest of the world or the left try to influence our our judicial system and in these cases and uh, our legislative system? You know, there was a period where it was um, it was they would actually say out loud we should look to foreign courts for uh, for guidance. They don't say it out loud anymore because they got sort of, <laughs> most Americans said, um, what, uh, what's that? And, and you know, one of the great uh, hypocrisies of the current moment is um, you'll see the president of the United States talk about so-and-so is a, is a war criminal and so-and-so should be tried at the International Criminal Court. We've never joined that. America's never joined it. A bunch of people wanted to join it, mostly the Democrats, but we've never joined that because we said, why would we give sovereignty over our soldiers, our citizens to an international court? We don't buy that. But uh, the danger in my mind is the broader um, philosophical question that the courts, the Supreme Court especially, is facing of what is their role? How do they fit in? Are they are they the kings and queens of America? Are they the enlightened minds that will do something? You know, where does it go? Because if you, if you think all that, you'll start down the path that Clark Forsyth started talking about, which is, you know, are you going to make up a new framework? They made up the framework for Roe v. Wade. They made it up. It's shown. Are you going to make up a new framework? You're going to have to make it up. There's not, there's no place to go to the find the framework. You're going to have to make it up. 
But are you that important that you can make it up? Uh, and and a lot of uh, a lot of the jurisprudence seems to indicate that you know we elect these judges to be on the Supreme Court and become justices, and now they're the arbiters of what's true. I don't know. You know that's not been our tradition. Yeah, and it's interesting to put uh, that statistic of us being among seven nations yeah. in the context of. Uh, what these other nations have chosen to do, because if we even have a, a case, if if we have the Dobbs case overturn Roe v. Wade and turn it back to the states, that still leaves us among those collection of seven nations, because this is that's just seven nations that haven't put a national prohibition on abortion after 20 weeks. So if, even if you have a patchwork right. of different state laws, that still puts us behind the eight ball uh, compared to the vast majority of the rest of the uh, developed or undeveloped world, honestly. And so, you know, a lot of people are, are tending to talk about the global society and, and all of that. Uh, but this should give us some pause to think about, you know, what are they seeing that we're not seeing? And, and I think that there's a great body of evidence uh, scientifically to say that you know, this, this has become almost a cultural American thing. Abortion yeah. is something that's become just a political football, not an issue that's really based in science for most of the left. And I, I think well, this, this you're being a little bit, I think you're being generous because you're young and idealistic. I, it's all about money. It's money and yeah. power. No, the yeah. left has the left has realized that you can funnel millions, trillions, I don't know, billions, for, certainly billions into the abortion movement and you can influence politics. So if you're a Democrat, uh, a, a legislator, it, yeah, you may be uh, thinking deeply about the policies and the principles, but you're more likely thinking about the jack, Jack. They like the money and they love taking tax dollars and putting it towards it. And then I do think, we need to be a little bit less uh, glib. Uh, you know, Satan is real. You don't believe mm -hmm. Satan is real is a different starting point, but Satan is real. If I could design a system that would have people in a country, a nation, good people knitted together who okay, who glorify killing babies, that's uh, Satan could do a lot less than that and be pretty disruptive. So it feels to me, it doesn't feel to me, it's, it looks uh, really evil. Um, one more, one thing backwards. So on, on talking about the rest of the world, when they look at America, I think the one thing about this that will change uh, the phrase look at, um, I wish I'd thought to ask Clark Forsyth this, when they, when they made it up in 71, two, three, they made up the framework trimester, they had no ultrasound. They had no 3D mm -hmm. imaging. They had no sonograms. You come all the way down to today, to 2022. You're not just you're not just having some of those things. You're having 3D printing of the baby. I don't know if you've seen those, Jordan. It's extraordinary. You can you yeah. can 3D print the baby, and the ability for us to unlock the physical manifestation of pregnancy way back is changing how people look at the question. Younger people, they do this in polling. They say what? Between about 30 and 50, they've been conditioned to think abortion is something about power. But younger than 30, they're looking and going, what? I've seen too many pictures. There's something there. You're not telling me that's nothing more and more. Um, the, the interesting question is, how do we also inform the spirit of that? It's not just a physical animal. It's not like having a puppy, mm -hmm. it, right? It's having a it's, a, it's a, it's a gift from God that has a soul. And, and we're going to see more and more examples of that as we see these incredible images of you know, 20 week, 19 week babies that live and are sitting there talking to us at age five. And they're saying, uh, here I am. You're like, what? We used to kill those. 
that's not, you know, so the world is also watching the great American success of technology. A lot of it is ours that says what's going on here. And I think that will be a powerful informer uh, of the popular understanding, I hope. Yeah. So to you, the pro-life activist sitting out there feeling like you are all alone, uh, know that you don't just have the majority of Americans on your side. That's right. You have the vast majority of the world on your side. And don't let the left, with all of their money and all of their power, tell you that you should look at that picture of a child or hold that 3D image in your hand and ignore that scientific proof. Because yep. there we have not only righteousness on our side, but we have uh, the vast majority of the world on our side. And it's time to do something about that. Yeah, well said. Well said. All right. Let's uh, let's wrap this up. Life Matters, this podcast we're doing. We hope you enjoy it. Give us some feedback. If you like what you're hearing, share it, like it, pass it on to others. You can contact Jordan and I both directly, Ed or Jordan, our first name at phyllisschlafly.com, phyllisschlafly.com. It's also our website, phyllisschlafly.com. If you go there, you can uh, uh, listen to this podcast again, pass it on to others. All that kind of stuff is there. So Jordan, any last uh, minute uh, things I'm forgetting? Yeah, we'll have uh, links to uh, uh, Clark's book and some of the other things that we talked about on the show down in the show notes. So be sure that you check that out. Uh, the countdown to Dobbs continues, folks. So remember, life matters. Life matters. Where life matters. Great to be with you, Jordan. Thank you. And great salute uh, to Clark Forsyth. He's a great man, a great father, great husband, really a special guy and a, a great thinker. Abuse of Discretion is his book. AUL.org is the website of his organization. So until next time, don't forget that life matters. Life Matters is a production of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles and Family Vision Media. To learn more, please visit phyllisschlafly.com and familyvisionmedia.org.